Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. It is good to speak to David Harrow. He is one of the world's great international investors. That does well when international stocks does well and does less well when it is a struggle. And it has been a struggle. David, you are in the fabric of the Midwest. You're coming to us from Wisconsin today, and you're based out of Chicago. This unrest that we see, I know it doesn't affect your investment strategy. I know you're going to tell us uh, that, but it colors the international tone. How does the unrest of America change international investment forward? Well, it depends um, whether this becomes a permanent a part of the uh, fabric of our society, this unrest and this divisiveness. I think if it's just a passing uh, storm, then we'll, you know, it won't have any impact. If this divisiveness continues to elevate and persist, perhaps it will put a tiny little risk premium, all else equal, on U.S. equities. But, you know, I do believe our country will get over this. Um, this is something that I think the wrong people are taking advantage of, of what was a bad situation, and it brought out the worst in certain people, a certain small, small, small element. And I think we're going to get over this. We are, we're a good country. The, pay, the people here are basically inherently good people. Mm-hmm. And, we're, and we'll get control of this, and, and this storm will pass. We talked to the technology capitalism minister, Mrs. Vestiger, rather, of Brussels earlier this morning, and she is, many Americans would suggest, anti-tech. David, from where you stand in investment, American technology reigns supreme. Is it still of value? Um, I think in some places you could find reasonable prices in American tech, and specifically in Alphabet. In our global portfolios, we still have a large position in Alphabet because we believe if you mark-to-market cash and their assets and give them credit for some of the things they've been doing and investing, that it's still very much a value. It, it trades at or below the market multiple when you make those necessary valuation adjustments, and it really should trade well above the, the market multiple. David, there's an argument about value coming back finally over growth, which has benefited most over the past few years. And this is something that you adhere to and have underperformed as a result of it. In your recent letter to the shareholders, you were apologetic about it. Why do you believe that's set to change? Because I ultimately, I believe that businesses and stocks really are financial assets and that the price of these financial assets is an important aspect what makes them attractive. If you could get certain businesses at a fraction of what they're worth, they're worth being determined by their free cash flow streams. Again, this is the, the predication that we believe a company is valuable based on what it's able to generate in terms of free cash flow. And if you look at the prices some of these industrial businesses in particular are, are selling at, that price ultimately will matter. Well, price matters when you buy anything. Now, for a while now, for a long while, almost the better part of a dec- decade, price has taken a back seat. But when the dispersion between two classes of assets, we'll call them growth assets for lack of a better word, and value assets, it reads reaches such a large level, you're bound to see a rebalancing, especially since 
when it starts, when people start to get interested in value assets again, the door to get into these assets is very, very small because they've been so heavily sold. They're trading at very, very low market cap. So my argument is that I don't know exactly when this will happen, but when it does happen, you will see such a snapback because there's so little involvement in these assets today. And to me, this is one of the big opportunities in investing. We're all saying, well, you know, the U.S. market is starting to look pricey, et cetera, et cetera. But then again, you could look at segments of the stock market, and especially if you were to look at my area, international value. I mean, this is probably the worst four or five months I've had in you know, 34 years. And it's the companies aren't just falling apart and, and going bankrupt. Uh, a lot of these businesses are actually going to come out of this just fine and doing very well. And yet they're still down 30, 40, or 50% year to date. And to us, this really represents opportunity. If you could get quality business franchises selling at low single-digit price-to-cash-flow multiples, businesses with good balance sheets and good cash flow streams, Think of a Daimler or BMW in Germany or uh, some, some of the companies in the, uh, in the European financial sector like a BNP Paribas or industrial businesses like a Glencore. If you could get these businesses this cheap, this is the time in our view to be buying them. David, we got a taste of that last week in certain segments of this market, specifically the financials and specifically in Europe too. But some of that was largely a top-down story. I hope that European politicians got their act together and moved forward with fiscal stimulus and some form of debt mutualization as well. David, I guess my question for you, for someone who focuses much more on bottom-up, whether those trades in Europe that we got a flavor of performing last week, whether they depend on Europe getting its act together at a European level? I don't know if Europe will ever get its act together, to be honest, because it's just almost impossible for them to do so. You have so many uh, different agendas within the EU. It's, it's hard to get any kind of a consensus. What I think will propel these and awaken these valuations it's just through the economic recovery as people get back to work and as economies reopen. And I think this is the real story. Europe came into this a bit earlier. Remember Italy and Spain? Um, generally speaking, Europe came into this uh, COVID-19 crisis a little earlier and, and you know, shut down pretty hard. And they're kind of starting to open in many ways earlier. I mean, you see Italy's opening today and uh, almost completely opening. And the German kids went back to school, I think, in April. And so <clears throat> you're beginning to see normalization that will be the light at the end of this dark uh, economic tunnel. And that, to me, is what will awaken some of these value stories as it becomes evident that these companies made it through the storm. Now, the icing on the cake will be if the European Union could ever get their act together and if, for instance, the Europeans and the British could ever decide on a trade agreement. This will be icing on the cake. Both of these have some potential, but I think that these things are not needed for this recovery to really take off. What's needed for the stock market recovering Europe to take off is for the economies to reopen and the light at the end of the economic tunnel. And I think that will be enough to um, shine some light on these values that I've been talking about. 
David, just real quick here, I'm wondering how much your outlook for Europe depends on its relationship with China remaining at least where it is now and not deteriorating further amid a backdrop of rising U.S.-China tensions and sort of pressure that they take some sort of stance here. Yeah, this this is an important question because the Europeans as well as the Americans, uh, uh, you know, the Europe, Europe is a big exporting nation. Germany, Italy, France, they're big exporting nations, and one of their big exporting clients is China, as well as the U.S. and as well as the U.K. And so these economic relationships, the stability of these economic relationships are going to be important, you know, as these economies recover. So I do think that is an important factor to watch. Um, the U.S. actually, it's a little bit less so. We're, the U.S. is actually a little less dependent on China for its exports. Certain sectors are very dependent, if you look at like Boeing as an example, and the, and the egg sector. But for the most part, I think um, the exports that are most at risk for a destabilized China, the, the Europeans, this is something you have to watch. David Harrell, thank you so much. With Harris Associates, thrilled that he could be with us uh, today. We're thrilled to bring you right now uh, on Bloomberg Surveillance, Richard Haas. He is Oberlin 73, which means he and I have the memories of the tumult of the late Vietnam War. And far more important than that, Ambassador Haas, you and I have crystal clear memories of the riots of 67, 68. I go back to the Rochester riots of 1964 with very clear memories of that. Richard Haas, how is this different from what you and I remember of our youth? Uh, it is different, Tom, and it's different in worrisome ways. Yes, you have the, the rioting and the looting against the backdrop of injustice. On 68, you had some awful things, obviously, in terms of uh, the assassinations and the rest. In uh, 70, you had Kent State. What I think is different about this, though, is what you were just discussing. It's the backdrop of a public health crisis that's claimed the lives of well over 100,000 Americans, and we don't know how many more coming down the road, and against, what, 20, 25 percent unemployment. Uh, so it's this combination of physical threat, economic threat, and now political division and violence. And it, it's uh, the combination of the three uh, has got to have people worried about the, uh, where this country is and where it's heading. You and I remember the speech of LBJ on a Sunday evening years and years ago. It was widely presumed we would see the president speak last night. He and advisors chose not to. What would you recommend as the next step for President Trump? Well, it seems to me he should only speak if he's got something that's healing and reassuring and talks about not just Mr. Floyd, but essentially the lessons that need to be learned, the lessons, the lessons that need to be applied about policing. He also needs to address public health concerns, economic concerns. Essentially, he has to step up to the moment, stop the divisive uh, tweets, stop the personal attacks. Essentially, he, he should only speak if he's, if he's willing and able to rise to the occasion. But if he wants to use the occasion for political purposes or to deflect or to attack, then essentially uh, less is more. And he should continue to, to stay inside the White House. I'm wondering if you pair what we're seeing in terms of domestic unrest with the idea that President Trump withdrew from the WHO on Friday, something that absolutely has been evaporated from the news cycle. I'm just wondering if you can pair domestic unrest with U.S. isolationism. How does that sort of feedback onto the United States as a leader in the, in the world? 
Well, what you're seeing in the world is the United States is essentially abdicating. We have a uh, we haven't been pushed out of our traditional leadership role of the last 75 years. We have unilaterally taken ourselves out of it. Uh, we've tr- withdrawn for more agreements, more arrangements, more institutions than I, uh, than I can count. So you've got that abdication of leadership, but on top of that now you have the demonstration effect, the example we're setting to the world of incompetence and ineptness in dealing with uh, the pandemic. We're seeing this, we're seeing this violence, we're seeing this, uh, violent police activity as well as well as violence on on the part of some of those who are who are protesting so a big part of foreign policy is or put another way leadership is two dimensions one is what your diplomats do and what the president has basically said we're going to withdraw and the other the other part of uh, leadership is the example you set and this is hardly an example any society in the world would want to emulate so this is this is really about as bad as it gets uh, Ambassador Haas, fantastic to have you with us. I haven't got through the whole of the new book, The World, an introduction just yet. But if there is a chapter in there on hegemonic power, have we ever had a reluctant hegemon, a hegemon that just steps away? No, funnily enough, one of my previous books many books ago was called The Reluctant Sheriff. And I used the phrase to describe uh, a previous president, but it applies much more to this one. And no, I can't find a historical example of a, a leading country in the world that voluntarily stepped down, not because of circumstances, but because of choice. When a country like Britain was forced to back off its leadership role, essentially it was forced. It simply didn't have the capacity, the resources anymore. It was too small of a country to, to sustain that role. But this is, this, is, this is voluntary. And what's so worrisome to me, it's not as though we're stepping back, having put something better in its place. To, again, use a parallel to the domestic situation, it reminds me a little bit of the health care debate in this country, where we've repealed, but we've not replaced. And that's what I feel we've done in the world. We've repealed American leadership and the world order we help bring about, but we've not put something as good, much less better, in its place. If we had to rebuild that, Richard, what shape would that take? Because there are a lot of people, like yourself, and I'm not saying these are your thoughts, but others share them, that maybe the world pulls back into two spheres of influence, with China at the epicenter of one and the United States at the epicenter of another. Is that something you can see happening? And what kind of institutions do we need to think about to actually see that happen, see that come around? Well, I wouldn't want to see it happen by any means, because China, to me, represents a model I would hardly want to see spread widely in terms of its authoritarianism uh, at home, and given its, its, much, of its, much of its modern uh, history. Now, is it possible? Yes, I think a more likely alternative to a U.S.-led world is a nobody-led world, where a world of uh, greater unraveling, of, of greater violence, uh, of, of, of a greater gap between global challenges and responses. What I'd like to see is not a unilateral American effort, but, but, but real leadership, which implies followership. The United States working with others, and by the way, including China, to deal with everything from proliferation, to terrorism, to climate change, to public health, to regulate the behavior in cyberspace, and so on and so on. That, to me, is going to define the 21st century. And I would just say that after two decades, we are not off to a good start. Just real quick here, as the distractions mount with respect to U.S.-China trade tensions and domestic unrest, what's the increasing risk of some sort of infiltration by bad actors to the United States that go undetected? 
Well, we probably already had infiltration through cyberspace. Uh, I think that's the, the, the biggest one. Could terrorists take advantage of this? Conceivably. I'm more worried about some global event, whether it, you know, one could even argue some of what the Chinese are doing in Hong Kong is an attempt to exploit the moment. But I worry whether it's North Korea, Iran, Russia, China, who knows. Some country, some entity might try to take advantage of the fact that the United States is distracted. We are you know, uh, divided politically, and they may say this is an opportunity, this is a moment. So that is something I actually think we need to be, we need to be you know, vigilant about. Ambassador Haas, always fantastic to catch up with you, sir, of the Council on Foreign Relations and, of course, the author of The World, A Brief Introduction. It's going to be amazing, John. I know you want to talk to our next guest about PMI and some of those dynamics that we talk about. Right now, folks, Ethan Harris with us, and we welcome all of you on radio and television worldwide, head of economic research for Bank of America. And Dr. Harris, I want to go back to your book on Ben Bernanke of ages and ages ago, because I believe, Ethan Harris, in your book, there was somewhat conventional economics. That is out the door. If you were to write a book right now on Jay Powell's Fed, how would you tackle the conventional economics of the moment? The super crisis uh, playbook playing out. I mean, it's, it's not completely new. I mean, we saw the Fed kind of experiment with some incredibly radical policies back in 2008, 2009. But then, but the Powell's kind of taken that to to a new level, and it, you know it's crisis management. It's not totally unprecedented, but the scale here is something we've never seen before. Ethan, so let's talk about the data that we already have been seeing. Goldman Sachs actually upgrading their expectation for stocks and saying that the jobless data actually confirms a view that is more optimistic than they were previously expecting. Are we seeing something that resembles more of a V-shaped economy, that recovery in the economy than people had previously uh, accounted for? Um, I don't think so. I think that, listen, we're going to bounce off some awful numbers here. So the unemployment rate, we think this week hits 19%. That is obviously partly temporary due to the shutdowns. And, you know, that, that data is already a, a couple weeks old. Um, so we're going to see the unemployment rate come back down again. But where is it going to come down to? It's going to probably be above 10% at year-end, which is where we were at the worst of the 2008-2009 recession. So, uh, you know, a V-shape recovery, this is a funny V where the left-hand side plunges, and on the right-hand side you go halfway up. And so I, I don't think we're seeing V-shaped numbers right now. The market, Ethan, just focused on the sequential improvement as you go from shutdown to reopening. And as you point out, we're still not quite focused enough, I don't think, on the limits of this recovery. The hope is there. A lot of people look to the soft data as a leading indicator for how quickly this economy might be reopening and normalizing. And Ethan, I know you've done a lot of work on this with the team at Bank of America, so I want to explore it with you with a little bit more detail. Why are the PMIs so flawed right now? Why are they less useful than they once were? Well, let's think about the, what a PMI is. You're, you're asking an executive at a firm to tell you whether activity was up or down this month. So let's say that activity collapses in a month, and so they record that it's collapsed, and you get a PMI that's very low, you know, 20 or 30, because many different executives are saying activity fell. 
But then let's say you don't recover at all um, and activity is flat in the following month. Well, the PMI will go back to 50 because they're saying activity is flat at these very depressed levels. So people will look at the data and they'll see we went from like 52 down to 30 and now we're back to close to 50. That's a V. It's not a V. A V means you go above 50 which means that you're starting to recover, that you're starting to see growth that offsets the, the collapse. So I think that there's been a tendency to kind of miss the fact that we have to look at the 50 level. That's, that's a flat economy. Flat economies after a collapse is an L-shaped recovery, not a V-shaped recovery. Ethan, this is really important as we gauge and digest the data in the coming weeks and months. Begs the question, what's the best data point to follow? What are the team following? The high-frequency data, what are you guys looking at at the moment? Yeah, I mean, there's a, the New York Fed has a nice indicator that kind of uh, takes the 10, 10 high-frequency numbers uh, and, and creates a, a weekly index, and that, that, that indicator has fallen sharply and has a very slight... A recovery. It's got claims and you know other other daily and we, and weekly statistics in there. That's a pretty good number. And and I do think that some of the the Google uh, mobility data is useful. Numbers that kind of measure whether you people are going to the train station or not, whether they're um, they're they're going going to retail shops or not. And all of these indicators are showing that we're you know we're we're starting to move off the bottom here. Uh, but um, at a very kind of slow pace. And I guess I shouldn't forget, we also have some good um, data from Bank of America and our credit card and debit spending data that, that also can capture oh. these, these, these trends. That was the plug. Yeah. Nice to get that in there, Dr. Harris. I'm good. Mr. Moynihan, I hope you heard that this morning from the good uh, Dr. Harris. Ethan, one more question quickly, uh, if we could. We all understand the Gini coefficient's not good. We understand the inequalities of America. Give us your interpretation of the dynamics of that inequality right now. Well, I mean, we were in a good phase here late in the cycle until the COVID hit, um, where the weaker parts of the labor market were recovering. You're finally getting some wage growth. You're bringing in uh, people. And, you know, when you work, you learn and you become better and build your resume. That was happening. And so the inequality issue is actually starting to improve slightly. The COVID crisis has been really bad because it's, it's putting out of work um, a lot of lower-income workers um, in the service sector and so on. And so the, the shock is very disproportionately hitting uh, low-income workers, uh, minorities, uh, and other uh, disadvantaged groups. So it's, it's, been a, it's been a blow to what was the beginning of some progress. Ethan Harris of Bank of America. Ethan, really appreciate your time. Send my best to the team. Some fantastic work over the last several weeks on this pandemic we're all working through. Francine Lacroix in London. I'm Tom Keene in New York. We've really been focused on the protest in America, the very difficult overnight and into Monday morning. But right now we digress to China, and there's no one better to do that with than Meredith Sumter of Eurasia Group. Meredith, thank you so much for joining us, and we could speak for two hours. We just don't have that time today. What are the cards that President Xi holds right now? It seems he's in control of the debate. Is that true? 
she is is looking to appear in control of the domestic debate. But right now, the focus in Beijing is how to take advantage of the unrest in the United States to better position Beijing and Xi Jinping. So the, the U.S. mishandling of the virus spread within its borders. President Trump abandoning the WHO and global leadership during a global pandemic, <clears throat> as well as the scenes of rioting and unrest and divisiveness in the U.S., all contrast with how Xi Jinping is looking to portray a competent, orderly China that is willing to make contributions to the global public good, including by providing money to the WHO for global pandemic relief efforts. So we're watching the way that Beijing is trying to position itself uh, to shore up its own reputation externally, but also domestically at this time of the U.S. crisis. Right. What will be, Meredith, the action that Beijing will take to shore up its relationship with the third world? I think at, at this stage, Beijing is going to try to position itself as the, the country that is more concerned and focused on their overall well-being of emerging market economies. Uh, and it's not just with global pandemic relief, Tom and Francine. It is also uh, Beijing being the, the global power that is putting monies into global infrastructure and trying to... Uh, to keep open uh, global trade and investment ties at a time of, of global fragmentation. This will be successful partially, uh, depending upon how closely those emerging market economies are tied with China. But to be clear, the, the developing world governments, they want choice. They don't want to be put in one camp or the other as the world's two largest economies continue to face off. They want to be able to get the investment and trade from both large economies. And we are going to be watching as these, these emerging markets and economies struggle to try to balance the competing pressures of the two. Uh, Meredith, good morning from London. You talk about uh, global fragmentation. Is it going to be even worse in 2021 compared to what we're seeing now? Francine, we, we do believe so. Uh, if you look at where the, the numbers are heading, even with even with economies partially reopening, until we have a vaccine that makes it safe for all workers uh, to, to go to work and for businesses to fully reopen. If you look at the, at the pathway of the virus spread, what we expect is there's going to be a partial reopening of economies, much like you're seeing in Europe and the United States. But as the virus transcends through the emerging market world, you're going to have that same effect. We're not going to see that sharp rise in cases and, uh, and a, a sharp peak that comes down. Rather, you're going to see a, more of a, a long wave of cases that, that slowly bend down uh, until there is that vaccine. That's going to have a disruptive effect on <clears throat> consumption, uh, and that means disruption for business activity and ultimately employment and livelihoods. Uh, that's going to make it more difficult for these economies to recover. They're going to be looking yeah. for an outside lifeline. And right now it's China more so than the United States who is speaking in a way that, that gives them a sense that China is looking out for that trade and investment interest right. uh, at a time when the U.S. is more so focused inwardly. Meredith, too short a visit. Meredith Sumter, thank you so much with your Raise Your Group uh, today.
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.